At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com slash workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Treachery, duplicity, and intrigue abound as the final secrets of Treasure Island are revealed. Robert Louis Stevenson, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are proudly supported by our listeners. Many, many thanks to our financial supporters who pitch in every month to help keep us going. If you enjoy the show, please sign up to be a supporter for as little as $5 a month. We'll give you a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more and you get more. It's a great way to build out your classic audiobook library. And get smarter. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a financial supporter today. Thank you so much. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and check us out on YouTube if that's your idea of a good time. And now, Treasure Island, Part 7 of 7 by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 4. The Treasure Hunt. Flint's Pointer. Jim, said Silver when we were alone. If I saved your life, you saved mine, and I'll not forget it. I seen the doctor waving you to run for it, with the tail of my eye I did. And I seen you say no, as plain as hearing. Jim, that's one to you. This is the first glint of hope I had since the attack failed, and I owe it you. And now, Jim, we're to go in for this here treasure hunting, with sealed orders, too, and I don't like it, and you and me must stick close, back to back like, and we'll save our necks in spite of fate and fortune. Just then a man hailed us from the fire that breakfast was ready and we were soon seated here and there about the sand, over biscuit and fried junk. They had lit a fire fit to roast an ox, and it was now grown so hot that they could only approach it from the windward, and even there not without precaution. In the same wasteful spirit they had cooked, I suppose, three times more than we could eat, and one of them, with an empty laugh, threw what was left into the fire, which blazed and roared again over this unusual fuel. I never in my life saw men so careless of the morrow. Hand to mouth is the only word that can describe their way of doing. And what with wasted food and sleeping sentries, though they were bold enough for a brush and be done with it, I could see their entire unfitness for anything like a prolonged campaign. Even Silver, eating away with Captain Flint upon his shoulder, had not a word of blame for their recklessness. And this the more surprised me, 
for I thought he had never shown himself so cunning as he did then. Aye, mates, said he. It's lucky you have barbecue to think for you with this here head. I got what I wanted, I did. Sure enough, they have the ship. Where they have it, I don't know yet. But once we hit the treasure, we'll have to jump about and find out. And then, mates, us that has the boats, I reckon, has the upper hand. Thus he kept running on, with his mouth full of the hot bacon. Thus he restored their hope and confidence, and, I more than suspect, repaired his own at the same time. As for hostage, he continued, that's his last talk, I guess, with them he loves so dear. I got my piece of news, and thank ye to him for that. But it's over and done. I'll take him in a line when we go treasure hunting, for we'll keep him like so much gold, in case of accidents, you mark. And in the meantime, once we got the ship and treasure both and off to sea like jolly companions, why, then we'll talk Mr. Hawkins over, we will, and we'll give him his share, to be sure, for all his kindness. It was no wonder the men were in a good humour now. For my part, I was horribly cast down. Should the scheme he had now sketched prove feasible, Silver, already doubly a traitor, would not hesitate to adopt it. He had still a foot in either camp, and there was no doubt he would prefer wealth and freedom with the pirates to a bare escape from hanging, which was the best he had to hope on our side. Nay, and even if things so fell out that he was forced to keep his faith with Dr. Livesey, even then what danger lay before us? What a moment that would be, when the suspicions of his followers turned to certainty, and he and I should have to fight for dear life, he a cripple and I a boy, against five strong and active seamen. Add to this double apprehension, the mystery that still hung over the behaviour of my friends, their unexplained desertion of the stockade, their inexplicable session of the chart, or, harder still to understand, the doctor's last warning to Silver, look out for squalls when you find it, and you will readily believe how little taste I found in my breakfast, and with how uneasy a heart I set forth behind my captors on the quest for treasure. We made a curious figure, had anyone been there to see us, all in soiled sailor clothes and all but me, armed to the teeth, Silver had two guns slung about him, one before and one behind, besides the great cutlass at his waist, and a pistol in each pocket of his square-tailed coat. To complete his strange appearance, Captain Flint sat perched upon his shoulder and gabbling odds and ends of purposeless sea-talk. I had a line about my waist and followed obediently after the sea-cook, who held the loose end of the rope, now in his free hand, now between his powerful teeth. For all the world I was led like a dancing bear. The other men were variously burthened, some carrying picks and shovels, for that had been the very first necessary they brought ashore from the Hispaniola, others laden with pork, bread and brandy for the midday meal. All the stores, I observed, came from our stock, and I could see the truth of Silver's words the night before. Had he not struck a bargain with the doctor, he and his mutineers, deserted by the ship, must have been driven to subsist on clear water 
and the proceeds of their hunting. Water would have been little to their taste. A sailor is not usually a good shot. And besides all that, when they were so short of eatables, it was not likely they would be very flush of powder. Well, thus equipped, we all set out. Even the fellow with the broken head, who should certainly have kept in shadow, and straggled, one after another, to the beach, where the two gigs awaited us. Even these bore trace of the drunken folly of the pirates, one in a broken thwart, and both in their muddy and unbailed condition. Both were to be carried along with us for the sake of safety, and so with our numbers divided between them, we set forth upon the bosom of the anchorage. As we pulled over, there was some discussion on the chart, the Red Cross was, of course, far too large to be a guide, and the terms of the note on the back, as you will hear, admitted of some ambiguity. They ran, the reader may remember, thus. Tall tree, spyglass shoulder, bearing a point to the north of nor-nor-east. Skeleton island, east-southeast and by-east. Ten feet. A tall tree was thus the principal mark. Now, right before us, the anchorage was bounded by a plateau from two to three hundred feet high, adjoining from the north the sloping southern shoulder of the spyglass, and rising again towards the south into the rough, cliffy eminence called the Mizzenmast Hill. The top of the plateau was dotted thickly with pine trees of varying height. Every here and there, one of a different species rose forty or fifty feet clear above its neighbours and which of these was the particular tall tree of Captain Flint, could only be decided on the spot, and by the readings of the compass. Yet although that was the case, every man on board the boats had picked a favourite of his own ere we were halfway over, Long John alone shrugging his shoulders and bidding them wait till they were there. We pulled easily, by Silver's directions, not to weary the hands prematurely, and after quite a long passage, landed at the mouth of the second river, that which runs down a woody cleft of the spyglass. Thence, bending to our left, we began to ascend the slope towards the plateau. At the first outset, heavy, miry ground, and a matted, marish vegetation, greatly delayed our progress. But by little and little, the hill began to steepen and become stony underfoot and the wood to change its character, and to grow in a more open order. It was indeed a most pleasant portion of the island that we were now approaching. A heavy-scented broom, and many flowering shrubs had almost taken the place of grass. Thickets of green nutmeg trees were dotted here and there with the red columns and the broad shadow of the pines, and the first mingled their spice with the aroma of the others. The air, besides, was fresh and stirring, and this, under the sheer sunbeams, was a wonderful refreshment to our senses. The party spread itself abroad, in a fan-shape, shouting and leaping to and fro. About the centre, and a good way behind the rest, Silver and I followed, I tethered by my rope, he ploughing with deep pants among the sliding gravel. From time to time, indeed, I had to lend him a hand, or he must have missed his footing and fallen backward down the hill. We had thus proceeded for about half a mile, and were approaching the brow of the plateau, 
when the man upon the farthest left began to cry aloud as if in terror. Shout after shout came from him, and the others began to run in his direction. He can't have found the treasure, said old Morgan, running past us from the right, for that's clean atop. Indeed, as we found when we also reached the spot, it was something very different. At the foot of a pretty big pine, and involved in a green creeper, which had even partly lifted some of the smaller bones, a human skeleton lay, with a few shreds of clothing on the ground. I believe a chill struck for a moment to every heart. He was a seaman, said George Merry, who, bolder than the rest, had gone up close and was examining the rags of clothing. Leastways this is good sea-cloth. Ay, ay, said Silver. Like enough. You wouldn't look to find a bishop here, I reckon. But what sort of way is that for bones to lie? Taint in nature. Indeed, on a second glance, it seemed impossible to fancy that the body was in a natural position. But for some disarray, the work perhaps of the birds that had fed upon him, or of the slow-growing creeper that had gradually enveloped his remains, the man lay perfectly straight, his feet pointing in one direction, his hands, raised above his head like a diver's, pointing directly in the opposite. "'I've taken an ocean into my old numbskull,' observed Silver. "'Here's the compass. There's the tip-top point of Skeleton Island,' "'Sticking out like a tooth. "'Just take a bearing, will you, "'along the line of them bones.' "'It was done. "'The body pointed straight in the direction of the island, "'and the compass read duly east, southeast, and by-east. "'I thought so,' cried the cook. "'This here is a pinter. "'Right up there is our line for the pole star,' and the jolly dollars, but by thunder, if it don't make me cold inside to think of Flint. This is one of his jokes, and no mistake. Him and these six was alone here. He killed em, every man. And this one, he hauled here and laid down by compass, shiver me timbers. They're long bones, and the hair's been yellow. Aye, that would be Allardyce. You mind Allardyce, Tom Morgan? "'Aye, aye,' returned Morgan. "'I mind him. "'He owed me money, he did, "'and took my knife ashore with him.' "'Speaking of knives,' said another, "'why don't we find his and lying around? "'Flint were a man to pick a seaman's pocket, "'and the birds, I guess, would leave it be.' "'By the powers, and that's true,' cried Silver. "'There ain't a thing left here,' said Mary, "'still feeling round among the bones.' Not a copper doit, nor a backy box. It don't look natural to me. No, by gum, it don't, agreed Silver. Not natural. Nor not nice, says you. Great guns. Messmates, but if Flint was living, this would be a hot spot for you and me. Six they were, and six are we, and bones is what they are now. I saw him dead with these here deadlights, said Morgan. Billy took me in. There he laid, with penny pieces on his eyes. Dead? Aye. Sure enough, he's dead and gone below, said the fellow with the bandage. 
but if ever spirit walked it would be Flint's. Dear heart, but he died bad, did Flint. Aye, that he did, observed another. Now he raged, and now he hollered for the rum, and now he sang. Fifteen men were his only songmates, and I tell you true, I never rightly liked to hear it since. It was main hot, and the windy was open, and I hear that old song coming out as clear as clear, and the death hall on the man already. Come, come, said Silver, stow this talk. He's dead and he don't walk, that I know. Leastways, he won't walk by day, and you may later that. Care killed a cat. Fetch a head for the doubloons. We started, certainly, but in spite of the hot sun and the staring daylight, the pirates no longer ran separate and shouting through the wood, but kept side by side and spoke with bated breath. The terror of the dead buccaneer had fallen on their spirits. Chapter 5 The Treasure Hunt The Voice Among the Trees Partly from the damping influence of this alarm, partly to rest Silver and the sick folk, the whole party sat down as soon as they had gained the brow of the ascent. The plateau being somewhat tilted towards the west, this spot on which we had paused commanded a wide prospect on either hand. Before us, over the treetops, we beheld the cape of the woods fringed with surf. Behind, we not only looked down upon the anchorage and skeleton island, but saw, clear across the spit and the eastern lowlands, a great field of open sea upon the east. Sheer, above us, rose the spyglass, here dotted with single pines, there black with precipices. There was no sound but that of the distant breakers, mounting from all round, and the chirp of countless insects in the brush. Not a man, not a sail upon the sea. The very largeness of the view increased the sense of solitude. Silver, as he sat, took certain bearings with his compass. There are three tall trees, said he, about in the right line from Skeleton Island. Spyglass shoulder, I take it, means that lower point there. It's child's play to find the stuff now. I've half a mind to dine first. Oh, I don't feel sharp, growled Morgan. Thinking of flint, I think it were, has done me. Ah, well, my son, you praise your stars he's dead, said Silver. He were an ugly devil, cried a third pirate with a shudder. That blew in the face, too. That was how the rum took him, added Mary. Blue? Well, I reckon he was blue. That's a true word. Ever since they had found the skeleton and got upon this train of thought, they had spoken lower and lower, and they had almost got to whispering by now, so that the sound of their talk hardly interrupted the silence of the wood. All of a sudden, out of the middle of the trees in front of us, a thin, high, trembling voice struck up the well-known air and words. Fifteen men on the dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho, ho, and a bottle of rum. I have never seen men more dreadfully affected than the pirates. 
The color went from their six faces like enchantment. Some leaped to their feet, some clawed hold of others. Morgan groveled on the ground. It's Flint, boy, cried Mary. The song had stopped as suddenly as it began. Broken off, you would have said, in the middle of a note, as though someone had laid his hand upon the singer's mouth. Coming through the clear, sunny atmosphere among the green treetops, I thought it had sounded airily and sweetly, and the effect on my companions was the stranger. Come, said Silver, struggling with his ashen lips to get the word out. This won't do. Stand by to go about. This is a rum start, and I can't name the voice, but it's someone skylarking. Someone that's flesh and blood, and you may later that. His courage had come back as he spoke, and some of the colour to his face along with it. Already the others had begun to lend an ear to this encouragement, and were coming a little to themselves. When the same voice broke out again, not this time singing, but in a faint, distant hail that echoed yet fainter among the clefts of the spyglass, Darby McGraw! it wailed, for that is the word that best describes the sound. Darby McGraw! Darby McGraw! Again, and again, and again. And then rising a little higher, and with an oath that I leave out, Fetch aft the rum, Darby! The buccaneers remained rooted to the ground, their eyes starting from their heads. Long after the voice had died away, they still stared in silence, dreadfully, before them. That fixes it, gasped one. Let's go. It was his last words, moaned Morgan. His last words above board. Dick had his Bible out and was praying volubly. He had been well brought up, had Dick, before he came to sea and fell among bad companions. Still Silver was unconquered. I could hear his teeth rattle in his head, but he had not yet surrendered. Nobody in this here island ever heard of Darby, he muttered. Not one but us that's here. And then making a great effort. Shipmates, he cried, I'm here to get that stuff, and I'll not be beat by man or devil. I never was feared of Flint in his life, and by the powers, I'll face him dead. There's seven hundred thousand pound, not a quarter of a mile from here. When did ever a gentleman of fortune show his stern to that much dollars for a boozy old seaman with a blue mug, and him dead too? But there was no sign of reawakening courage in his followers, rather indeed of growing terror at the irreverence of his words. Belay there, John, said Mary. Don't you cross a spirit and the rest were all too terrified to reply. They would have run away severally had they dared, but fear kept them together, and kept them close by John, as if his daring helped them. He, on his part, had pretty well fought his weakness down. Spirit? Well, maybe, he said. But there's one thing not clear to me. There was an echo— now no man ever seen a spirit with a shadow, 
Well, then, what's he doing with an echo to him, I should like to know? That ain't in nature, surely. This argument seemed weak enough to me. But you can never tell what will affect the superstitious. And to my wonder, George Merry was greatly relieved. Well, that's so, he said. You've a head upon your shoulders, John, and no mistake. About shipmates, this here crew is on a wrong tack, I do believe. And come to think on it, it was like Flint's voice, I grant you, but not just so clear away like it, after all. It was like a somebody else's voice now. It was like a... By the powers, Ben Gunn! roared Silver. Aye, and so it were, cried Morgan, springing on his knees. Ben Gunn it were. It don't make much odds, do it now? asked Dick. Ben Gunn's not here in the body any more'n Flint. But the older hands greeted this remark with scorn. Why, nobody minds Ben Gunn, cried Mary. Dead or alive, nobody minds him. It was extraordinary how their spirits had returned, and how the natural colour had revived in their faces. Soon they were chatting together, with intervals of listening, and not long after, hearing no further sound, they shouldered the tools and set forth again, Mary walking first with Silver's compass to keep them on the right line with Skeleton Island. He had said the truth, dead or alive, nobody minded Ben Gunn. Dick alone still held his Bible, and looked around him as he went, with fearful glances. But he found no sympathy, and Silver even joked him on his precautions. I told you, said he, I told you you had spiled your Bible. If it ain't no good to swear by, what do you suppose a spirit would give for it? Not that. And he snapped his big fingers, halting a moment on his crutch. But Dick was not to be comforted. Indeed, it was soon plain to me that the lad was falling sick. Hastened by the heat, exhaustion, and the shock of his alarm, the fever, predicted by Dr. Livesey, was evidently growing swiftly higher. It was fine open walking here, upon the summit. Our way lay a little downhill, for as I have said, the plateau tilted towards the west. The pines, great and small, grew wide apart, and even between the clumps of nutmeg and azalea, wide-open spaces baked in the hot sunshine. Striking, as we did, pretty near northwest across the island, we drew on the one hand ever nearer under the shoulders of the spyglass, and on the other looked ever wider over that western bay, where I had once tossed and trembled in the oracle. The first of the tall trees was reached, and by the bearings proved the wrong one, so with the second. The third rose nearly two hundred feet into the air above a clump of underwood, a giant of a vegetable, with a red column as big as a cottage, and a wide shadow around in which a company could have manoeuvred. It was conspicuous far to sea, both on the east and west, and might have been entered as a sailing mark upon the chart. But it was not its size that now impressed my companions. It was the knowledge that seven hundred thousand pounds in gold lay somewhere buried below its spreading shadow. The thought of the money, as they drew nearer, swallowed up their previous terrors. Their eyes burned in their heads. Their feet grew speedier and lighter. 
their whole soul was found up in that fortune, that whole lifetime of extravagance and pleasure that lay waiting there for each of them. Silver hobbled, grunting on his crutch. His nostrils stood out and quivered. He cursed like a madman when the flies settled on his hot and shiny countenance. He plucked furiously at the line that held me to him, and from time to time turned his eyes upon me with a deadly look. Certainly he took no pains to hide his thoughts, and certainly I read them like print. In the immediate nearness of the gold all else had been forgotten. His promise and the doctor's warning were both things of the past, and I could not doubt that he hoped to seize upon the treasure, find and board the Hispaniola under cover of night, cut every honest throat about that island, and sail away, as he had at first intended, laden with crimes and riches. Shaken as I was with these alarms, it was hard for me to keep up with the rapid pace of the treasure-hunters. Now and again I stumbled, and it was then that Silver plucked so roughly at the rope and launched at me his murderous glances. Dick, who had dropped behind us and now brought up the rear, was babbling to himself both prayers and curses as his fever kept rising. This also added to my wretchedness, and to crown all, I was haunted by the thought of the tragedy that had once been acted on that plateau, when that ungodly buccaneer with the blue face, he who died at Savannah, singing and shouting for drink, had there, with his own hand, cut down his six accomplices. This grove that was now so peaceful must then have rung with cries, I thought, and even with the thought I could believe I heard it ringing still. We were now at the margin of the thicket, "'Huzzah, mates! All together!' shouted Mary, and the foremost broke into a run. And suddenly, not ten yards further, we beheld them stop. A low cry arose. Silver doubled his pace, digging away with the foot of his crutch like one possessed, and next moment he and I had come also to a dead halt. Before us was a great excavation, not very recent, for the sides had fallen in and grass had sprouted on the bottom. In this were the shaft of a pick broken in two and the boards of several packing cases strewn around. On one of these boards I saw, branded with a hot iron, the name Walrus, the name of Flint's ship. All was clear to probation. The cash had been found and rifled, the seven hundred thousand pounds were gone. Chapter 6 The Fall of a Chieftain There never was such an overturn in this world. Each of these six men was as though he had been struck. But with Silver, the blow passed almost instantly. Every thought of his soul had been set full stretch like a racer on that money. Well, he was brought up, in a single second, dead. And he kept his head, found his temper, and changed his plan before the others had had time to realize the disappointment. Jim, he whispered, take that and stand by for trouble. And he passed me a double-barreled pistol. At the same time, he began quietly moving northward, and in a few steps 
had put the hollow between us two and the other five. Then he looked at me and nodded as much as to say, Here is a narrow corner. As indeed I thought it was. His looks were not quite friendly, and I was so revolted at these constant changes that I could not forbear whispering, So you've changed sides again. There was no time left for him to answer in. The buccaneers, with oaths and cries, began to leap one after another into the pit and to dig with their fingers, throwing the boards aside as they did so. Morgan found a piece of gold. He held it up with a perfect spout of oaths. It was a two-guinea piece, and it went from hand to hand among them for a quarter of a minute. Two guineas! roared Mary, shaking it at silver. That's your seven hundred thousand pounds, is it? You're the man for bargains, ain't you? You're him that never bungled nothing, you wooden-headed lubber. Dig away, boys, said Silver, with the coolest insolence. You'll find some pig-nuts, and I shouldn't wonder. Pig-nuts, repeated Mary, in a scream. Mates, do you hear that? I tell you now, that man there knew it all along. Look in the face of him, and you'll see it wrote there. Ah, Mary, remarked Silver. Standing for Carton again? You're a pushing lad, to be sure. But this time everyone was entirely in Mary's favour. They began to scramble out of the excavation, darting furious glances behind them. One thing I observed, which looked well for us. They all got out upon the opposite side from Silver. Well, there we stood, two on one side, five on the other, the pit between us, and nobody screwed up high enough to offer the first blow. Silver never moved. He watched them, very upright on his crutch, and looked as cool as ever I saw him. He was brave and no mistake. At last, Mary seemed to think a speech might help matters. Mates, says he, there's two of them alone there. One's the old cripple that brought us all here and blundered us down to this. The other's that cob that I mean to have the heart of. Now, mates! He was raising his arm and his voice and plainly meant to lead a charge. But just then, crack, 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 three musket shots flashed out of the thicket. Mary tumbled head foremost into the excavation. The man with the bandage spun round like a teetotum and fell all his length upon his side, where he lay dead, but still twitching, and the other three turned and ran for it with all their might. Before you could wink, Long John had fired two barrels of a pistol into the struggling Mary, and as the man rolled up his eyes at him in the last agony, "'George,' said he, "'I reckon I settled you.' At the same moment, the doctor, Gray, and Ben Gunn joined us, with smoking muskets, from among the nutmeg trees. "'Forward!' cried the doctor. "'Double quick, my lads. We must head em off the boats.' And we set off at a great pace, sometimes plunging through the bushes to the chest. I tell you, but Silver was anxious to keep up with us. The work that man went through, leaping on his crutch till the muscles of his chest were fit to burst, was work no sound man ever equalled and so thinks the doctor. As it was, he was already thirty yards behind us, and on the verge of strangling, 
when we reached the brow of the slope. Doctor, he hailed. See there, no hurry. Sure enough, there was no hurry. In a more open part of the plateau, we could see the three survivors still running in the same direction as they had started, right for Mizzenmast Hill. We were already between them and the boats, and so we four sat down to breathe, while Long John, mopping his face, came slowly up with us. Thank ye kindly, doctor, says he. You came in in about the nick, I guess, for me and Orkins. And so it's you, Ben Gunn, he added. Well, you're a nice one, to be sure. I'm Ben Gunn, I am, replied the maroon, wriggling like an eel in his embarrassment. And, he added, after a long pause, How do, Mr. Silver? Pretty well, I thank you, says you. Ben, Ben, murmured Silver, to think as you've done me. The doctor sent back Grey for one of the pickaxes deserted in their flight by the mutineers, and then, as we proceeded leisurely downhill to where the boats were lying, related in a few words what had taken place. It was a story that profoundly interested Silver, and Ben Gunn, the half-idiot maroon, was the hero from beginning to end. Ben, in his long, lonely wanderings about the island, had found the skeleton. It was he that had rifled it. He had found the treasure. He had dug it up. It was the haft of his pickaxe that lay broken in the excavation. He had carried it on his back, in many weary journeys, from the foot of the tall pine to a cave he had on the two-pointed hill at the northeast angle of the island, and there it had lain stored in safety since two months before the arrival of the Hispaniola. When the doctor had wormed this secret from him on the afternoon of the attack, and when next morning he saw the anchorage deserted, he had gone to Silver, given him the chart, which was now useless, given him the stores, for Ben Gunn's cave was well supplied with goat's meat, salted by himself, given anything and everything to get a chance of moving in safety from the stockade to the two-pointed hill, there to be clear of malaria and keep a guard upon the money. As for you, Jim, he said, it went against my heart, but I did what I thought best for those who had stood by their duty. And if you were not one of these, whose fault was it? That morning, finding that I was to be involved in the horrid disappointment he had prepared for the mutineers, he had run all the way to the cave, and leaving the squire to guard the captain, had taken Grey and the maroon, and started, making the diagonal across the island, to be at hand beside the pine. Soon, however, he saw that our party had the start of him, and Ben Gunn, being fleet of foot, had been dispatched in front to do his best alone. Then it had occurred to him to work upon the superstitions of his former shipmates, and he was so far successful that Grey and the doctor had come up and were already ambushed before the arrival of the treasure hunters. Ah, said Silver, it were fortunate for me that I had Orkins here. You would have let old John be cut to bits and never given it a thought, doctor. Not a thought replied Dr. Livesey, cheerily. And by this time we had reached the gigs. The doctor, with the pickaxe, demolished one of them, and then we all got aboard the other and set out 
to go round by sea for North Inlet. This was a run of eight or nine miles. Silver, though he was almost killed already with fatigue, was set to an oar like the rest of us, and we were soon skimming swiftly over a smooth sea. Soon we passed out of the straits and doubled the southeast corner of the island, round which, four days ago, we had towed the Hispaniola. As we passed the two-pointed hill, we could see the black mouth of Ben Gunn's cave and a figure standing by it, leaning on a musket. It was the squire, and we waved a handkerchief and gave him three cheers, in which the voice of Silver joined as heartily as any. Three miles farther, just inside the mouth of North Inlet, what should we meet but the Hispaniola, cruising by herself? The last flood had lifted her, and had there been much wind or a strong tide current, as in the southern anchorage, we should never have found her more, or found her stranded beyond help. As it was, there was little amiss beyond the wreck of the mainsail. Another anchor was got ready and dropped in a fathom and a half of water. We all pulled round again to Rum Cove, the nearest point for Ben Gunn's treasure house, and then Gray, single-handed, returned with the gig to the Hispaniola, where he was to pass the night on guard. A gentle slope ran up from the beach to the entrance of the cave. At the top, the squire met us. To me he was cordial and kind, saying nothing of my escapade either in the way of blame or praise. At Silver's polite salute he somewhat flushed. "'John Silver,' he said, "'you're a prodigious villain, an impostor, a monstrous impostor, sir. I am told I am not to prosecute you. Well, then I will not. But the dead men, sir, hang about your neck like millstones.' "'Thank ye kindly, sir,' replied Long John, again saluting. "'I dare you to thank me,' cried the squire. "'It is a gross dereliction of my duty. Stand back!' And thereupon we all entered the cave. It was a large, airy place, with a little spring and a pool of clear water, overhung with ferns. The floor was sand. Before a big fire lay Captain Smollett, and in a far corner, only duskily flickered over by the blaze, I beheld great heaps of coin and quadrilaterals built of bars of gold. That was Flint's treasure, that we had come so far to seek, and that had cost already the lives of seventeen men from the Hispaniola. How many it had cost in the amassing, what blood and sorrow, what good ships scuttled on the deep, what brave men walking the plank blindfold, what shot of cannon, what shame and lies and cruelty, perhaps no man alive could tell. Yet there were still three upon that island, Silver and Old Morgan and Ben Gunn, who had each taken his share in these crimes, as each had hoped in vain to share in the reward. "'Come in, Jim,' said the captain. "'You're a good boy in your line, Jim, but I don't think you and me'll go to sea again.' You're too much of the born favourite for me. Is that you, John Silver? What brings you here, man? Come back to my duty, sir, returned Silver. Ah, said the captain, and that was all he said. What a supper I had of it that night, with all my friends around me, and what a meal it was, 
with Ben Gunn's salted goat and some delicacies and a bottle of old wine from the Hispaniola. Never, I am sure, were people gayer or happier. And there was Silver, sitting back almost out of the firelight, but eating heartily, prompt to spring forward when anything was wanted, even joining quietly in our laughter. The same bland, polite, obsequious seaman of the voyage out. Chapter 7 And Last The next morning we fell early to work, for the transportation of this great mass of gold near a mile by land to the beach, and thence three miles by boat to the Hispaniola, was a considerable task for so small a number of workmen. The three fellows still abroad upon the island did not greatly trouble us. A single sentry on the shoulder of the hill was sufficient to ensure us against any sudden onslaught, and we thought besides they had had more than enough of fighting. Therefore the work was pushed on briskly. Gray and Ben Gunn came and went with the boat, while the rest, during their absences, piled treasure on the beach. Two of the bars, slung in a rope's end, made a good load for a grown man, one that he was glad to walk slowly with. For my part, as I was not much use at carrying, I was kept busy all day in the cave packing the minted money into bread-bags. It was a strange collection, like Billy Bones's hoard, for the diversity of coinage, but so much larger and so much more varied that I think I never had more pleasure than in sorting them. English, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Georges and Louises, doubloons and double guineas and moidores and sequins, the pictures of all the kings of Europe for the last hundred years, strange oriental pieces stamped with what looked like wisps of string or bits of spider's web, round pieces and square pieces and pieces bored through the middle as if to wear them round your neck. Nearly every variety of money in the world must, I think, have found a place in that collection, and for number, I am sure they were like autumn leaves, so that my back ached with stooping, and my fingers with sorting them out. Day after day this work went on. By every evening a fortune had been stowed aboard, but there was another fortune waiting for the morrow, and all this time we heard nothing of the three surviving mutineers. At last... I think it was on the third night, the doctor and I were strolling on the shoulder of the hill where it overlooks the lowlands of the isle, when, from out the thick darkness below, the wind brought us a noise between shrieking and singing. It was only a snatch that reached our ears, followed by the former silence. Heaven forgive them, said the doctor. Tis the mutineers. All drunk, sir struck in the voice of Silver from behind us. Silver, I should say, was allowed his entire liberty, and in spite of daily rebuffs, seemed to regard himself once more as quite a privileged and friendly dependent. Indeed it was remarkable how well he bore these slights, and with what unwearying politeness he kept on trying to ingratiate himself with all. Yet I think none treated him better than a dog, unless it was Ben Gunn who was still terribly afraid of his old quartermaster, or myself, who had really something to thank him for. Although, for that matter, I suppose, 
I had reason to think even worse of him than anybody else, for I had seen him meditating a fresh treachery upon the plateau. Accordingly, it was pretty gruffly that the doctor answered him. Drunk or raving, said he. Right you were, sir, replied Silver. And precious little lord's witch to you and me. I suppose you would hardly ask me to call you a humane man, returned the doctor with a sneer. And so my feelings may surprise you, Master Silver. But if I was sure they were raving, as I am morally certain one at least of them is down with fever, I should leave this camp, and at whatever risk to my own carcass, take them the assistance of my skill. Ask your pardon, sir, you would be very wrong, quoth Silver. You would lose your precious life, and you may lay to that. I'm on your side now, hand and glove, and I shouldn't wish for to see the party weakened, let alone yourself, seeing as I know what I owes you. But these men down there, they couldn't keep their word. No, not supposing they wished to. And what's more, they couldn't believe as you could. Now, said the doctor, you're the man to keep your word, we know that. Well, that was about the last news we had of the three pirates. Only once we heard a gunshot a great way off and supposed them to be hunting. A council was held, and it was decided that we must desert them on the island, to the huge glee, I must say, of Ben Gunn, and with the strong approval of Grey. We left a good stock of powder and shot, the bulk of the salt goat, a few medicines, and some other necessaries, tools, clothing, a spare sail, a fathom or two of rope, and by the particular desire of the doctor, a handsome present of tobacco. That was about our last doing on the island. Before that, we had got the treasure stowed, and had shipped enough water and the remainder of the goat meat in case of any distress. And at last, one fine morning, we weighed anchor, which was about all that we could manage, and stood out of North Inlet, the same colours flying that the captain had flown and fought under at the palisade. The three fellows must have been watching us closer than we thought for, as we soon had proved. For coming through the narrows, we had to lie very near the southern point, and there we saw all three of them kneeling together on a spit of sand, with their arms raised in supplication. It went to all our hearts, I think, to leave them in that wretched state. But we could not risk another mutiny, and to take them home for the gibbet would have been a cruel sort of kindness. The doctor hailed them and told them of the stores we had left, and where they were to find them. But they continued to call us by name and appeal to us, for God's sake, to be merciful, and not leave them to die in such a place. At last, seeing the ship still bore on her course, and was now swiftly drawing out of earshot, one of them, I know not which it was, leapt to his feet with a hoarse cry, whipped his musket to his shoulder, and sent a shot whistling over Silver's head and through the mainsail. After that we kept under cover of the bulwarks, and when next I looked out they had disappeared from the spit, and the spit itself had almost melted out of sight in the growing distance. That was, at least, the end of that, and before noon, to my inexpressible joy, the highest rock of Treasure Island had sunk into the blue round of sea.
we were so short of men that everyone on board had to bear a hand, only the captain lying on a mattress in the stern and giving his orders, for though greatly recovered, he was still in want of quiet. We laid her head for the nearest port in Spanish America, for we could not risk the voyage home without fresh hands. And as it was, what with baffling winds and a couple of fresh gales, we were all worn out before we reached it. It was just at sundown when we cast anchor in the most beautiful landlocked gulf, and were immediately surrounded by shore boats full of Negroes and Mexican Indians and half-bloods, selling fruits and vegetables and offering to dive for bits of money. The sight of so many good-humoured faces, especially the blacks, the taste of the tropical fruits, and above all the lights that began to shine in the town, made a most charming contrast to our dark and bloody sojourn on the island. And the doctor and the squire, taking me along with them, went ashore to pass the early part of the night. Here they met the captain of an English man-of-war, fell in talk with him, went on board his ship, and, in short, had so agreeable a time that day was breaking when we came alongside the Hispaniola. Ben Gunn was on deck, alone and as soon as we came on board he began, with wonderful contortions, to make us a confession. Silver was gone. The maroon had connived at his escape in a shore-boat some hours ago, and he now assured us he had only done so to preserve our lives, which would certainly have been forfeit if that man with the one leg had stayed aboard. But this was not all. The sea-cook had not gone empty-handed. He had cut through a bulkhead unobserved, and had removed one of the sacks of coin, worth perhaps three or four hundred guineas, to help him on his further wanderings. I think we were all pleased to be so cheaply quit of him. Well, to make a long story short, we got a few hands on board, made a good cruise home, and the Hispaniola reached Bristol just as Mr. Blandley was beginning to think of fitting out her consort. Five men only— of those who had sailed, returned with her. Drink and the devil had done for the rest, with a vengeance. Although, to be sure, we were not quite in so bad a case as that other ship they sang about. With one man of her crew alive, what put to sea with seventy-five. All of us had an ample share of the treasure, and used it wisely or foolishly, according to our natures. Captain Smollett is now retired from the sea. Gray not only saved his money, but being suddenly smit with the desire to rise, also studied his profession, and he is now mate and part-owner of a fine, full-rigged ship, married besides, and the father of a family. As for Ben Gunn, he got a thousand pounds, which he spent or lost in three weeks, or, to be more exact, in nineteen days, for he was back begging on the twentieth. Then he was given a lodge to keep, exactly as he had feared upon the island. And he still lives, a great favourite, though something of a butt with the country boys, and a notable singer in church on Sundays and saints' days. Of silver we have heard no more. That formidable seafaring man with one leg has at last gone clean out of my life. But I dare say he met his old negress, and perhaps still lives in comfort with her and Captain Flint. It is to be hoped so, I suppose, for his chances of comfort in another world are very small. 
The bar, silver, and the arms still lie for all that I know, where Flint buried them, and certainly they shall lie there for me. Oxen and wain-ropes would not bring me back again to that accursed island, and the worst dreams that ever I have are when I hear the surf booming about its coasts, or start upright in bed, with the sharp voice of Captain Flint still ringing in my ears, Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Treasure Island Part 7 of 7 by Robert Louis Stevenson. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a monthly supporter by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off anything in the store. Give more and you get more. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. 